Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is Professor Balsersky. Professor Balsersky is a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University. He also recently did a lecture on C-SPAN about James Buchanan. Professor, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Ian. So what was your early life like and how did you get interested in U.S. history? Well, I think like a lot of your listeners, I benefited from a really good education. In fact, public education. I went to the public schools in Ramsey, New Jersey, where I grew up. And I credit my interest in history with a really good high school history teacher, Scott Tyerman, who still teaches at the schools. And from there, I was fortunate enough to attend Cornell University for undergraduate, where I actually didn't major in history. I majored first in American studies, which brings history, literature, and economics and other degrees into uh, conversation. And then, only then, in graduate studies, did I then pursue first a master's in history, and then a PhD in history. So by the time I was in graduate school, uh, it got pretty serious between me and history. You might say our relationship was uh, pretty far along. There you go. Did you ever play um, those board games like Risk or Stratego? Oh, sure. Uh, Role-playing games were a big part of who I was growing up. Yeah, both uh, the kind that would be board game, computer gaming, uh, And also, I really enjoyed growing up playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games with, uh, you know, in-person components. So, yeah, definitely. I think think history and the creative imagination uh, go hand in hand. Yeah, I've noticed that um, all my friends who are history nerds like me, um, we all used to play Risk together. (laughs) It's a great game. Um, So how did you get fascinated with James Buchanan? I like to think there is a, an immediate connection between James Buchanan and those of us from the Middle Atlantic, because James Buchanan was one of our very few presidents from the region. Um, he's the only president from Pennsylvania. And from New Jersey, where I'm from, we had birthside of Grover Cleveland and more properly Woodrow Wilson. So we don't have that many presidents to think about, but it's really not its really not that so much as it was something about Buchanan's life. It was something about who he was that attracted me. And that was when I heard he was our only bachelor president. I think that trying to, as a student, whether you be undergraduate, grad, or beyond as just a lifelong student of history, trying to find personal connections between you and a research subject, between uh, a situation, a moment, um, a point in history, and your own life is key. So I think there is something of a biographical connection 
I could share with James Buchanan. And I also think that the way he's been treated by history, the way we still talk about him and his presidency as the worst president also intrigued me. Why was it he was the worst? I mean, we use superlatives all the time in our language, the best, the worst. And for the worst to be the worst in American history is to carry a heavy burden. So it's between, it was really those two things. It was this idea that this bachelor, this unmarried man from the 19th century was our worst president. And I kind of wanted to see what the relationship was. And I proceeded from there to research his life. And uh, as I say, uh, the more I got into it, the more I began to see um, some connections to our current moment, as well as to continue that same connection between me as historian with my subject. Fascinating. And I, I love the bachelor element. Um, you mentioned in your lecture how he became close to a lot of the Southern politicians, really because there was a lot of bachelors in the South. Um, that was fascinating. And you talked about how uh, now Cory Booker, I didn't know that. I didn't know he was a, a or he is a bachelor. Um, not too many bachelors nowadays in politics. So that is a, a fascinating element. Um, in your C-SPAN lecture on Buchanan and his relationship with uh, Vice President King, and he was also a senator from Alabama, yeah. correct? That That's is, right. It is such a great um, lecture. It's on C-SPAN. Remind me the full name of it. Yeah, so the name of the book that the lecture draws upon is Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. And yes, Ian, you bring up the other research subject who sort of came into my life, you might say. Uh, I must say, I studied James Buchanan from the perspective of James Buchanan, and the book is more about Buchanan and his life. But William Rufus King became, for me, uh, sort of the leading man of Buchanan's life and of his political life especially. So that is why uh, the book includes both men's names in the, in the title. And the C-SPAN lecture name was simply uh, James Buchanan and William Rufus King relationship, a kind of shorthand of it. Yeah. And um, I loved at the end of the lecture how you allowed your students to ask you questions. There was some very interesting questions. Um, and I'm assuming this was done via Zoom. Yeah, uh, just a word about C-SPAN. I think it's a fantastic public service as uh, we have benefited as a society from its coverage. It's unbiased, nonpartisan. It doesn't have an agenda. And this C-SPAN 3 channel, actually, American History TV, runs programming throughout the week, but especially on weekends. I was fortunate back in 2015 to be asked to record a lecture in person on campus where I work at Eastern Connecticut State University. And so I was in their pool of prior presenters. So when the pandemic struck and when many of us were moving to a virtual classroom environment, the idea was to reach out to some of the people who had already presented once and to essentially give them a chance to try it again on the virtual format. So I was chosen for that. I was really appreciative. And because my book had just been published, I suggested that I write about or rather speak about uh, the book as my topic. But in fact, uh, the lecture was, was delivered virtually. That's right. My students were connected. It was a class on historical research and writing. 
So it was a small class, a seminar style for history majors. And by that point in the semester, they had all undertaken research for a major project, which would run between five and 10 pages and be based in primary sources. So I was really revealing to them my own research methodology, what I cared about, and really sort of inspiring them, I hope, to get into their subjects, to try to find those connections and to be passionate about what they research. Yeah, and they ask a lot of good questions. But you are, you know, you're so nice to them. It's it's not like law school. Um, the professors in law school, I remember I went out to, I went to law school in Indiana. And so my dad and I traveled from California to Indiana for orientation. And I remember there was a another prospective student there, and, and she asked one of the professors, she said, Well, do you embarrass the students? And he said, No, they do that on their own. <laughs> So it's, it's a, a harsh environment in, in law school. So, um, but yeah, your lecture was great. And the give and take with, with you and your students was very valuable. And, and, and uh, I really appreciated that lecture. So getting into James Buchanan, give me a little bit of background about James Buchanan. Who was he? Yes, James Buchanan is our nation's 15th president. Uh, I used to say you've probably never heard of him, but then I've realized I end up talking to a lot of history lovers. So actually people have heard of him. Uh, Maybe what they have heard of him has been nothing but bad. He was uh, born in the year 1791 in the greater uh, Lancaster area, actually was in in, um, uh, the town of Mercersburg. uh, And he eventually as a young uh, boy was brought with his family to Lancaster. So we say he's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I guess he's our only president from from Pennsylvania, but before his presidency, he was in the House of Representatives for more than 10 years. He did a term as minister to Russia. He did another term of 10 years in the Congress, this time in the upper chamber in the Senate, where he really established himself as a national statesman. And then did a second stint in a, a foreign ministry in United Kingdom prior to returning in 1856 to run as a Democrat for president. So Buchanan, was part of that Jacksonian Democratic Party. But because he had been around so long and he'd been uh, born in the era of, frankly, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, which became the, the Jeffersonian Republicans, which we call the Democratic Republicans. So actually he started out as a Federalist, uh, which some people would never let him live down, but he converted really. He had a kind of come to uh, Jackson moment uh, when he saw that Andrew Jackson represented not only the future of this party that was emerging, but really national politics itself. And he hitched his wagon to Jackson's uh, star. He, um, as a Democrat, he became essentially later on the upholder of the Jacksonian democratic tradition. And he very much, therefore, took the strict constitutionalist approach, the strict interpretation, I should say. This idea that his reading of the Constitution and his upholding of the laws as president needed to be strictly uh, following the Constitution and its interpretations. So in that sense, he was very much of his time. Uh, His Supreme Court, which which was headed by Chief Justice Roger Taney, who Jackson had appointed from his own cabinet previously, uh, was still very much interpreting the law in that same strict constitutionalist way. And Buchanan's very first kind of act, really in his inauguration day, in his speech was to announce that the Supreme Court 
would soon be making a final constitutional decision about this vexing question of slavery. Now, looking back on it, it was perhaps among the most naive things he ever said, that perhaps he believed still that a court uh, and nine men making a judgment, although they were divided in this Dred Scott case, could somehow put the final word on slavery after generations and decades of conflict, including some episodes in which he was involved, and from there, really, from the day he left office four years later, when Abraham Lincoln became president, his presidency dealt with the issue of slavery. Every single aspect of his presidency was in some way inflected by the sectional crisis that was emerging. And certainly in his management of the secession winter, this period of transition between his presidency and that of Lincoln, he failed in the crisis of leadership. Or at least I should say, he's been judged to have failed as a president, especially as he's compared, of course, next to Lincoln, who is often considered our greatest president and who is, uh, is thought to have risen to the moment of leadership during this crisis of civil war. Historians interpret Buchanan and his world somewhat differently, and I've been a part of those conversations as well. But I do find when I talk to my students, when I talk to the public, uh, they, they have a sense that Buchanan somehow messed up, and they want to know why, and they want to hear more about him. And I think my research has tried to give him a fair shake. I don't think it's a sympathetic necessarily one as much as it is a fair look at this 15th president of ours. Yeah, and, and he's so fascinating because I think you say at one point in your lecture, he may be the most qualified president ever. I mean, he was in Congress for a long time. He was ambassador to Russia. Is that right? One. And, um, you know, he's this guy who's a northerner. He's from Pennsylvania, but he's friends with all these southerners. He's a Democrat, which back then it's kind of flip-flopped the mm -hmm what we think of today as Democrats and Republicans, you kind of have to uh, mix it up. Um, but he's such a, an interesting character with a great resume. But, you know, by the time he hands over the presidency to Lincoln, the country's in shambles, right? Well, seven, seven Southern states had seceded. Uh, the, the Deep South, we might say. Uh, the Upper South, the Border South, did not secede until after the firing in Fort Sumter by Confederate forces on the Union position in the harbor. Uh, it's, it's the seven states that seceded, however, that gives Buchanan his difficulty and his historical reputation because his handling of that crisis was judged very poor. He, for one thing, would not interpret his role as chief executive, as commander in chief, to, to uh, ensure and insist the union is was bonded together by, as he knew would be have to be the case, war. He did not want to engage in a civil war, and he certainly did not want to take actions while the new administration was coming in that would uh, precipitate that war. So he very carefully avoided armed military conflict. The one episode where he sent a ship, a supply ship, to Charleston Harbor, the Star of the West, when it was fired at from the, the city, it turned around and did not try to resupply Fort Sumter. So he didn't necessarily contribute or light the fuse then to the start of the war. That fell to, uh, to South Carolina to do on its own right when Lincoln was president. But also how he um, tried to bring together compromise. Now, compromise for in, in the previous generation was thought to have been a vital part of what kept the union together. The political polarization between Republicans and Democrats by 1860, however, left no room for compromise. And so he was clinging to this notion that there could be a political middle ground. I think, frankly, Ian, because of his friendships, because of the kinds of relationships he had had uh, throughout his life in the Senate and, and in politics more generally, 
that he felt there was still room for that. He supported constitutional amendments that would have guaranteed slavery in its place in the union. And indeed it's, it's to, you know, his everlasting shame that he uh, did so. In other words, he was on the wrong side of the issue. He was on the wrong side of history and the incoming administration and the four years of civil war would show what the right side would be. And this relationship with um, Senator King and Vice President King is, is so fascinating. Um, can you explain a little bit to the listeners, give a little bit of background on who King was? And my question to you that really fascinates me is if you think, um, if King hadn't have died so young, do you think he could have prevented the Civil War? Because he was a, you know, he was a senator from Alabama, but he was also really pro-union, right? Yeah. Well, he lived to 68, which is, uh, it's getting up there in age. So it, he, he, he lived a full life, but he could have lived longer to your point. And that's a good speculative question. I want to address that. He was born in 1786. He's a bit older than Buchanan. And Unlike Buchanan, he came from the South. He was born in the Piedmont region of North Carolina near Fayetteville today. And he first came to Congress as a representative from North Carolina. So he had the interests of the South in mind, but North Carolina is not, was not in that period, a traditional cotton state. That is to say, it wasn't part of the cotton kingdom that later boomed uh, in the Southwest, as it was called today, the Southeast. But we're talking about places like Georgia, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, the real, the real, as it's called the black belt, both for the soil and ultimately for the African-American slaves who worked it. There, there's a sense in which he became that though, only when he finally moved to Alabama. And that was in 1819 as the territory was getting underway. And he became then part of a deep South, a more radical states rights democratic party coming from Alabama that on most of the issues of the next 40 years would always push in that direction. And this is where I think his background from North Carolina, but also ultimately his relationship with Buchanan comes into play. He was a moderate. I mean, he was a pro-compromise, pro-union, I would say moderate Democrat from the Deep South, which was a rarity. Uh, and in that sense, King always seemed to be on the cautionary side of things when it came to the conflicts of the antebellum period. Now, the fact that he was chosen to be the vice presidential running mate to the Democratic nominee Franklin Pierce in 1852 was partly because of this moderation. He represented a certain wing of the party uh, that, that would, would help Pierce, but also because of his relationship to Buchanan. And so he was part of a kind of block within the Democratic Party. And finally, too, the, the policy was to run one Northerner and one Southerner, which is what had made the Buchanan King, I think, possibility of them being their own ticket, potentially uh, important, but it didn't actually come to be that they, they would run together. They ended up running separately. And King, yes, he was elected in 1852 uh, and would have started in 1853 March, but by that time he was already seriously ill, in fact, fatally so with tuberculosis. And he succumbs to that, to that disease in April. Fun fact about it though, he was inaugurated as vice president um, by a special order of Congress though, he was able to take that inaugural oath in Cuba where he had gone to recuperate. So he's the only president or vice president to take the oath of office on foreign soil. That's interesting. And uh, Buchanan has an interesting fact about him. His vice president is the only vice president in history to take up arms against the United States government, right? 
Well, that's another good point. Yeah, it, it's interesting because Buchanan's vice president, John C. Breckinridge, who comes from Kentucky, but will ultimately fight in the war and will uh, absolutely be a stalwart and will end up actually uh, fleeing to Canada after the war until he could be sure to obtain presidential pardon. Um, he was a traitor and he was considered as such. And he was a younger version in some ways of a king. And I, I think that's a point I want to kind of make here is that King was always was always drawing a limit as to the extent he was willing to compromise or moderate. For Buchanan, there really was no limit. But King always sort of saw a moment where his commitment to Alabama and the Southern way of life, and particularly the institution of slavery that made his entire existence in Alabama growing cotton possible, had to come first. And I believe he would have drawn that line had he lived. So, I mean, in the one sense, he might have helped uh, stem off the Civil War for a period, that's possible. I mean, it's there is that chance. But on another, he would have eventually done exactly what Buchanan's vice president had done. He would have joined the Confederate cause, not as a general, he's too old for that by that point, but I could have seen King in some leadership capacity in, in the CSA. And in fact, we don't have to look too much further than his own family because uh, his nephew, in fact, uh, joined the Confederate cause and fought for the, the war, uh, fought in the war for the Confederacy. So. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the case that in his sort of pre-Civil War politics, he looks like this moderate unionist, but so many of those same folks who ended up becoming ardent secessionists and Confederates had similar politics as well. Yeah, another interesting fact about King is he didn't graduate from college, is that correct? It's a, actually something of a disputed point. The, the, the University of North Carolina doesn't have the records to prove it either way. They don't have uh, the same th th as they would today to say, was this student a graduate or not? So the best evidence we have is no, he never obtained the degree. Uh, and it suggests that he actually probably was a, maybe a semester short, uh, but he ended up going back to his hometown and getting involved, uh, first of all, in the law where he uh, became a kind of a, traveling solicitor for the county, and then ultimately jumping into politics. He was from a fairly wealthy family at that point, which owned perhaps more than 100 slaves. They were heavily involved in agriculture. As part of his sort of coming of age at 21, he was given both slaves and land, which jump-started his uh, career in the law, and then politics, and he became uh, the, the youngest congressman uh, to serve in the House at that time. He was elected at 24, and then I think he came in just to 25. Um, and I learned something from you that I did not learn in law school. Um, in law school, you know, obviously the Dred Scott decision is, is taught. It's a very important case and a very tragic point in our nation's history. Um, and you learn about Supreme Court Justice Taney and, and, and his decision. But I didn't know that James Buchanan um, influenced that decision. That was really fascinating. Yeah, they didn't know at the time either. And yet when he gave that inaugural address and he gave some kind of hint that the court would be forthcoming as decision, it became apparent he knew that there was a decision coming, but it was the more what he said. It was more how he said he believed there would be a final decision rendered. And, and, and it would be later that the evidence would show, yes, he was corresponding with more than one associate justice. And he was pushing particular justices to change their vote in the affirmative to try to build that, that margin to a higher degree. So he was meddling. Absolutely. Yeah, that's terrible. You know, that's why we have three branches of government. You know, they're supposed to 
supposed to be separate, but it sounds like uh, President Buchanan didn't really um, didn't really respect that. I think there's a good point. Uh, uh, there's a scholar, Rachel Sheldon, who's working on a new project about the history of Supreme Court justices running for president and being politically active. And I, I would say that more, more so than our current court, which is much more apolitical, the 19th century Supreme Court was a more political body. I mean, we only need to look to Tawney, who was Andrew Jackson's attorney general and, uh, and indeed was a sort of like Jackson appointee on the court right out of his own administration. That would never happen today, I don't think. Um, so in the sense that these justices were much more political, uh, politically sort of uh, active and inclined, in a sense, there's maybe a more forgivable behavior there. But at the same time, his real motive was to actually try to build a unity for the decision to thus make it seem more final. So he, he did have a political motive behind it. Uh, and I think you're right to say that it doesn't look very good in hindsight at all. Yes. Um, so one of the more fascinating points to your lecture was, um, you know, whether or not President James Buchanan was our first gay president. And that's why you examine this relationship with uh, Buchanan and King. So can you go, can you explain to the listeners a little bit um, about that era? You know, what, was it unusual to have that type of relationship? And do you think James Buchanan is our first gay president? Yeah, and, and to back to one of your first questions about how I became interested in and how I really came to uh, look at this subject from a personal perspective. The, the bachelor question was a kind of signal almost to me that this man was not living today in the same normative way that uh, so many people did. That is to say, married to a woman, uh, engaging uh, in a relationship with someone like that, and then maybe having children and becoming a father and, and so forth. And so many politicians actually fell into that category and still do. It's the predominant mode of our society. So when you had one bachelor in Buchanan, the question I had was, were there others? And that's where I came to King first. As, I, as I've been discussing, their relationship was way more politically significant than I think personally. And so to answer the question, was Buchanan our first gay president is the way as a way of also suggesting that we care about this because he was a president and we value that aspect of his political contribution. Um, my answer always comes in the form of trying to look at the primary source evidence and to try to understand it a little bit. So I thought I'd read uh, some of the letters that highlight their relationship. In May of 1844, Buchanan wrote to Cornelia Van Ness Roosevelt and a word about her. She was, turns out, uh, a romantic interest of Buchanan's and had married a Roosevelt of New York City. And at this point was fairly friendly also with King. So King was about to travel or had traveled, I should say, to New York City. And so Buchanan and King had parted after their time together in Washington, living together in a boarding house. So it's, this is at the end of what was a very significant period of domestic relationship, political partnership, and personal friendship. He writes, I envy Colonel King the pleasure of meeting you and would give anything and reason to be of the party for a single week. I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I've gone a wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. I feel that it is not good for man to be alone 
and should not be astonished to find myself married to some old maid who can nurse me when I am sick, provide good dinners for me when I am well, and not expect from me any very ardent or romantic affection. And in reply, we hear uh, from King the following. This is King writing to Buchanan in response to this letter. He writes, King, I'm selfish enough to hope you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. For myself, I shall feel lonely in the midst of Paris, for there I shall have no friends with whom I can commune as my own thoughts. Now, those are just two paragraphs from the many letters they exchange, but they actually reveal them at their most intimate. And it's been this evidence that historians and others who read it and look at it at first glance and point to what appears to be more than friendship, appears to be a sexual intimacy that then leads us in our modern language to call it a gay relationship. That is to say between two men uh, in both a, a kind of physical and a kind of emotional sense. I certainly did my research. I certainly uh, studied the history of same-sex attraction and sexuality. And I've studied it across the entire sweep of American history. I've studied political history. I've read the letters of people who we know were engaging in same-sex relations from this period and later. I've seen the language of intimacy and friendship. And I've come to conclude based on that study, as well as knowing the stories and the biographies of both men, that no, theirs was not a sexually intimate relationship did not have a physical component, almost certainly. That's my conclusion in the book and in the lecture. I do read, however, an intimate emotional connection, which I label an intimate male friendship. And it's also that male part that's important because these two men, besides being bachelors and besides never marrying, were able to express a kind of level of emotion that was available to men only with other men. And I think particularly only between unmarried men. And the actual text I read reveals a lot of concern and emotion over separation and being lonely. And indeed, that I think is what, what proved it for me is that uh, their domestic relationship had ended, this boarding house relationship in Congress had ended, and that is what was causing the emotional disturbance. Instead of trying to read gay sex, in other words, we need to read same-sex friendship. So during that, that time it, it was not unusual for men to sleep together in the same bed even, is that correct? Yeah, there, the Buchanan, of course, being compared to Lincoln in terms of his presidency, there's another way to compare Buchanan to Lincoln. There's been much research about Lincoln's friendships and about Lincoln's intimate male friendships with particularly uh, his law partner, William Herndon, but also others who come in and out of his life even during his presidency. Um, Yes, to your point, sleeping together in the same bed was common. Actually, in the Buchanan-King relationship, I don't think they ever did. They were always in separate bedrooms as part of the boarding house. And, and you know, being uh, when they met, they were both senators. They both had the means in which to do that. Now, it was more common in different settings, like in ta uh, taverns and in other places where this kind of communal world, more so than we have today. But that's not really the setting these two men were in, uh, in a Washington boarding house. But again, just that comparison to Lincoln gets me to the point that uh, male physical intimacy in terms of the kinds of um, um, non-sexual, I should say, intimacy, I believe was also more prevalent. We find evidence of uh, a more of a, a, you might call it homoerotic, but I would almost say more homosocial camaraderie in this period. And the physicality that followed from it, sleeping in beds is, is just part of it. 
uh, there seems to have been more of a comfort level potentially with touching and with this intimacy that extended to that. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that homosexuality had not yet been, first of all, uh, invented, the, the very word or phrase at this point, or later criminalized and, and medicalized into something deviant. So there wasn't the same stigma even then about these about what could have transcended into a, a, a sexual um, aspect. But I think that's, you know, even with that reading that I take and I take it across the 19th century, I still don't find the evidence for Buchanan and King. Uh, and so I would say, in fact, the opposite for Buchanan, I think he engaged in courtship throughout his life, failed at it. He was hopeless, I think. King, on the other hand, and this is what actually makes, I think, their story more poignant still, I think King was attracted to Buchanan. In fact, I read the way King writes about Buchanan, the way he treats him as being one-sided. And I think part of sort of the tragedy, you might say here, is there was never the reciprocation uh, from Buchanan. And in fact, it seemed like Buchanan used King when he was convenient and discarded him when he was not. Yeah, even when he passed away, um, he did not um, speak at his funeral. Is that right? Made no public comment. Wow. That's kind of the sad ending to that friendship, huh? Um, is it true that that Lincoln slept, um, I think he, he slept with like the judge or when he traveled as an attorney? Yeah. You know, is that true that these people would sleep together in the same bed? Yeah, so he, he, yeah, he was riding circuit as was common for lawyers in, in, in Illinois. So they actually would travel around the state and yeah, they went together, uh, lawyers, judges. I mean, the whole group would go from courthouse to courthouse around the state. That was part of the, the way in which justice was distributed in, in a frontier society like Illinois. So absolutely in, in that early period of his life, he's also, this is also where he gets his reputation for wrestling. Uh, right. He's the only president to be inducted into the wrestling hall of fame. That is so fascinating. That time frame. Thinking about uh, traveling the circuit and sleeping with a judge—that's uh, mind blowing. Um, so James Buchanan, growing up in Pennsylvania, you know, and and having friends in the South, yeah. where do you think his heart was really at with slavery? Yeah, Buchanan. Uh, not only did he have an intimate relationship to Southerners who brought often brought their slaves with them into the the boarding house and. And he was in Washington, D.C., itself a southern city with, within Maryland, Virginia, after all. I mean, it's the South at this time, and it has slavery. So he was fully comfortable with it. He was constantly surrounded by it. But on top of that, when he was uh, growing up, in fact, uh, members of his own family had slaves um, through an indentured system. So Pennsylvania had gradual emancipation, but when Buchanan was born, slavery was not outlawed in Pennsylvania. So the family actually relied on slave labor that was, that by the time Buchanan came around, were, these were people who were uh, in the process of gradual emancipation. Now, this, this is not the same kind of slave system that we see across the South where large plantation or even small to medium-sized farms with uh, field labor and, and, and then house, house slaves. Instead, uh, it would have been, I think, maybe just one or two people that he would have come into contact who would have been domestic uh, support for that family. And later on, too, um, these same enslaved people, in fact, as their gradual emancipation took place, 
would, their indentures were traded. So he made political gain of making a point that the indenture to these enslaved people, these gradually emancipated people, uh, was being passed to a political opponent. So he was actually very crafty around that issue. It's a little known episode of, of Buchanan's early life. But yes, by the time he becomes an adult, Pennsylvania has finally abolished slavery, moved to full abolition. And so he has to embrace a kind of fine line politically. Since most people in Pennsylvania did not obviously subscribe to slavery or else the state would have never abolished it after all, it was popular. It was not popular as an institution. But right over the Mason-Dixon line into Maryland, maybe 30 miles south of Lancaster, was a whole nother society. Maryland was a slave state, and that was the border between free and slave between Pennsylvania and Maryland. And so when Buchanan is... Uh, and able to write about it or speak about it, he will always distinguish, I'm personally opposed to slavery, which was a classic take. Someone like a Martin Van Buren or another Northern, important Northern Democrats, they would always say, I'm personally opposed to slavery, meaning they wouldn't own slaves if they could help it. They wouldn't participate in the system after a certain point, but they would protect it as constitutional. And they saw that as the bargain. They saw that as the bargain to keep people like William Rufus King in, in the Congress to keep states like Alabama uh, content. And they also saw, therefore, the political compromises that were taking place as needing to be fair and balanced between two competing sections. So he was a supporter of, say, the Missouri Compromise that set uh, the number of slave states and free states on the same level. And he was not a supporter of the Compromise of 1850 that he thought would and did, in fact, disrupt that balance with the admission of California. So he was in, in, he erred in the side of a kind of conservative Jacksonian orthodoxy towards slavery, and it, it was mixed up with his personal relationships starting with his early days and going right through uh, the members of his own cabinet who uh, brought slaves with them to Washington. James Buchanan is so fascinating. You know, he's president right before Lincoln. He's arguably responsible for the Civil War. Um, why do you think that traditional history courses overlook James Buchanan? Yeah, it's a good point. In, in the sense, we want to get to Lincoln already. <laughs> it, it, and I, I sympathize. I teach history, and I have to make decisions about what to emphasize and what not. And I don't actually talk very much about Buchanan when I, when I teach it. You think I might because of my research, but I actually think his place within the story of political development is somewhat minor. He's, I think, of interest to those uh, of us who study the period in greater depth than when I teach uh, a, an upper level elective on the period before the Civil War, we talk quite a bit about him. But I think part of it is he was a weak leader. And so he doesn't have that same biographical appeal that, say, Lincoln does. And we certainly don't celebrate or venerate Jim Buchanan today. In fact, we want to sort of forget him. That's what we do with our, our, our failed presidents and the ones we consider the worst presidents. And it's the burden of historians to learn their names, study them, and to teach them. But I don't think he's particularly attractive, particularly appealing. And even um, from the perspective of American history, we have an impulse to uh, not want to celebrate those who were failed presidents, but instead to dismiss them and forget them. Interesting. Okay. A couple more questions before I let you go. Okay. Which living person do you most admire? I was thinking about that question, Ian. Uh, and in all honesty and sincerity, right now, I would say Joe Biden. Uh, I really think for that man to have to have come out of basically retirement 
uh, as, as old as he is and to keep fighting for what he believes in, it's very admirable. And so this question of admiration, I really admire him right now. Um, I think there's, as with all politicians and with all political uh, debates and, and parties, there's much fault to be found and criticism to be made. I do that too. I, I think punditry has its place because it, it forces us to think critically, but I still admire him. I still admire uh, his, his courage and I admire his, uh, even his charisma. I admire his principles. I admire his commitment to, to at this moment of disunity, a commitment, a recommitment really to unity. I think as a president, he's in, a, in 2021 here, he's in a unique position to try to bring some of this long uh, tradition of compromise that he knew in the Senate in his time there into our American political environment again. But I also think he's a strong leader. And this is where he differs from the other JB, by the way, from Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. this is a, I didn't uh, even and, and say <laughs> there, there's there's an article there someday that the first James, the first JB, the second JB, because of course, Scrappy Joe is from Scranton. But, you know, I, I think they're not quite equal and opposites in that sense. I, I don't want to say that therefore uh, Biden's surpassing Lincoln. You know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying um, he stands for principles and he stands for politics also that I can get behind. So I think today it's good to, to, to maybe leave our cynicism beside for a minute and to actually admit we admire that man. Well, he has certainly made his share of mistakes and his decades of service to our country, but you know, he has served our country for a long time. He's got a very tough job and um, I'm optimistic. He's putting together a good team and definitely wish him the best. Uh, this is certainly unprecedented times and he's had so many challenges. So you, you got to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So how are you keeping active and staying sane during the lockdown? <laughs> Yeah, I know for a podcast that has the name Lockdown in it, that that, that maybe has to be said. The thing is, um, I, I don't know how unique it is, because I, I try to read statistics, and I think the New York Times ran a tracker once, but my school's in person. Um, we have most of our classes in person. You know, some of our class, well, we had two kinds of modalities, as we call it. We had an in-person rotating class, in-person rotating student. But every class I, I've taught since last year has been in person. After the initial pandemic, when we didn't know what we were doing, had no ability to test or control, my school has admirably committed to trying to be safe and run classes on ground here in Eastern Connecticut. So I will go in to the classroom. I will wear my mask. We will be socially distanced. That is to say the, the seats are six feet apart. And of course, students are tested regularly here on campus for coronavirus. So the dorms are open, people are, are trying to live their lives. And I really have to give uh, respect and admiration to the state of Connecticut for committing to this. Um, that being said, I'm still in lockdown in the sense that our society around us is has changed fundamentally uh, and it's, it's unclear how and when we will see a return to normalcy. So I have to say, I have picked up walking mm -hmm. and I've picked up hiking quite a bit more. I Like so many people, I feel like we turn now to the, the natural environment and the landscape around us, and we realize uh, all the hidden treasures of, of our very own backyards. And here in Eastern Connecticut, I'm blessed to live in an area where they call it the quiet corner. It's uh, complete, uh, really, uh, with trails, 
uh, for hiking, walking, and even biking, which I also do. So I think just being outside more has been good, uh, getting out there, and of course, being safe in the process. I guess that's how I'm, I'm staying sane in this lockdown. That's awesome. That's so admirable that um, your university has stayed open, and um, I'm sure the students greatly appreciate that. And that's so cool. You're in an, an area where you can get some fresh air. Um, I sold my house in the city and moved up into the Sierra Nevada mountains <laughs> for the same reason. I just wanted to get some fresh air and hiking and, and, um, take advantage of beautiful California. So last question for you, professor. Well, I guess it's a two pronged question. <laughs> what is your favorite and least favorite part of being a professor? I think I'll start with least favorite and it gets to a two prong question and even how I'm answering it. I start to answer everything with, uh, can you please get the newspaper? It's either A on the kitchen table or B on the living room table. Um, I've become an outliner. I think in terms of this, that, and the other thing. I've been, I, I sort of can't help but want to make trios out of everything. I, I find myself trying to think of every point of American history as a teachable moment. So I don't think I get to shut my brain off is what I'm saying. And I've become stamped with that sort of academic condition of thinking a certain way. Uh, I've, I've come more and more to realize that because I, I have a hard time winding down at the end of the day because your, your mind's a flurry. So I think I'm sort of too much in my head. That's my least part about being a fav least favorite part. Of course, the favorite part is, well, everything else. I am so lucky to, first of all, have gone to graduate school, to have been funded by my university, Cornell University, for a PhD in American history at a time when it feels like, and I know it's true, our society devalues history and the humanities and the liberal arts more generally in that tradition, to then get that degree, to study what I love, and to get a job. I want to put a plug in for your, for your listeners about the real crisis of higher education. And that is we as a, as a, as a overall society need to do more to support our system of higher education. I work at a state university. I work at a school where tuition is reasonable. I would even say cheap compared to certainly private universities. Um, and that we, are reliant therefore on, on state support, taxpayer support. We do, we, we make every dollar count at a state university and the education is very subsidized as a result. And let's be clear, that's the good, that's the public good of what a state school and a community college as well. This is the community colleges, state universities, more students go to school, higher ed in a public school than any other kind, certainly more than private. I mean, community colleges, I think I read are like, 75% of, of what students will, will in this country do. You know, so many of us though, we're so fortunate to go to four-year schools, private schools even uh, for both undergrad and grad that to then come back and to be able to teach, to be able to teach in a, a progressive state like Connecticut with students who want to learn and to do so in the town of Willimantic in the part of Connecticut that I think is picturesque and, and, and beautiful. I have no complaints. Well said. And I want to sincerely thank you for your passion and you educating our youth, the next generation. Um, much appreciated. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on to this podcast. 
and uh, happy new year and I hope you stay safe. Thanks, Ian. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.